Talk Radio 570 KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends. KVI Want to Know Weekends. Get ready to raise a toast with Seattle's most spirited hour of talk, Happy Hour Radio. Explore the best in Washington wines, beer, spirits, food, and more with your guide, Seattle sommelier, Christopher Chan. It's Happy Hour Radio, right now on Talk Radio 570 KVI. All right, Seattle. Hey, Seattle. Welcome to Happy Hour Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Chan, event sommelier, weekend wine guy, and the Commodore of cocktails. It is uh, late October, and of course, the uh, the goblins and the spooks and the, the boo bugs are out. Uh, I think I got a little bit of a bug uh, with all my travels. So there's uh, perhaps a, a toad in my throat. <laughs> and I guess I would say I need something to perhaps wash this toad down. I wonder what a sommelier would pair with a toad. Um, probably a white wine. I'm thinking perhaps um, maybe a Pinot Gris from Alsace, right? A little oxidative, uh, <laughs> especially if that toad uh, doesn't have any warts. Um, anyway, a happy October. It is Halloween weekend. Um, I know it's, you know, we. Sh- if it were me, I would make Halloween like the last Saturday of every October. So uh, one of these days I'll run for a president and have a real platform to discuss with the American people. Um, other than that, it's about enjoying uh, the season, enjoying friends, of course, responsibly. Uh, it's cocktail time. It's partying time. It's festivities. And for those of you who are looking for great gifts, of course, that's a special bottle of whiskey or that bottle of rye or perhaps even sake, or one of those uh, magical unicorn wines that you're, uh, you've read about and you think, you know, that would be super great, that guy, that person I love so much and want to share something that will make them so happy, and of course, hopefully they <laughs> share it with you. Uh, I happen to have um, one of the cats in the biz who actually can connect you with one of those unicorn wines. Uh, his name is Joe Fish. He is a former financier. Uh, he's a financier, and uh, he's now in the tech business with WineAccess.com. He's the CEO. Hey, Joe Fish, welcome to Happy Hour. Hey, Chris. Thanks uh, Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Uh, when we think about the world of wine, obviously the technology has changed the way um, we purchase wine, we learn about wine, we're exposed to wine and spirits and the beverages and food, for that matter. Um, tell me, wh- whose idea was this This idea of wine access? Was this your idea? No, this wasn't mine. It, it, it predated me. Um, you know, great founder who had been, been in the business for, for a long time uh, and you know, came up with the idea of saying, you know, I've traveled all over the world. I've visited all these amazing places. And when I'm looking at, you know, what the, the barriers of the world's greatest wines, it's not actually price, but it's access. We have, the, we have all these amazing wines locked up either at these small producers domestically or abroad. How can, how can we go about and bring that to, uh, to, to the U.S. market? I and, see. That, and that's really what kicked it off. All right, and so this was what twenty some years ago. I mean, I, gosh, I can't remember. The internet was founded in what ninety six, ninety five. Yeah, so it was definitely it was definitely during uh, during the early days early days of the internet dial and, up, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the, the little the, the little AOL uh, the little AOL screen running. So. That's right. Um, interesting. And where is Wine Access located, and how do you actually procure the wines? If access is so limited, how do you have the inside end or the uh, the backdoor man, so to speak? Yeah, yeah. So we're we're out here on the on the West Coast, uh, office in San Francisco, as well as in Napa. So 
our sourcing team, who are really the ones who are going around and procuring the wines, sit up in Napa. But I try to put them on a plane and get them out as much as possible. So absolutely amazing team. Uh, if we look at it, what I think is probably the most credentialed team you know, really in the industry, uh, Master Psalm, a couple of Master Wine candidates, uh, the foremost sake expert in, in the U.S. and former beverage director of Morimoto, as well as a 30-year vet on team. So they've everyone on this team has dedicated their, their lives to wine uh, and have amazing relationships all over the world. Very cool. So when we think about the world of wine, and um, are you just specializing in, in what's not accessible, or do you have, um, let's say, Silver Oak, Napa Valley? Is that something that you carry on the website? Yeah, yeah. So we, we do a combo of the two. So, so Silver Oak, amazing wine. I think it really punches punches above its weight. So we, we will offer you know anything from, from Silver Oak uh, to Adal Valley Kalina, to potentially an unknown producer, um, like a benevolent neglect. So every everything all in between. But we, at the end of the day, we have to make sure that from a from a price equality ratio, it's punching above its weight. Interesting. We just uh, I had an event here in Seattle uh, a couple months ago, and benevolent benevolent neglect was actually here uh, pouring some of the wine, which was really cool for me because I was unfamiliar. Now, when we think about WineAccess.com, and I'm speaking with Joe Fish, the CEO of WineAccess.com, do you actually uh, make offerings? And so it's kind of you have to be watching or have to look for your email box or inbox to sort of say, hey, that's something I'm interested. Or is it a catalog, and I can just pick uh, that? Uh, or the Napa Valley um, version of a wine anytime throughout the year? Yeah, so there's about three different, there's kind of three different ways they say that you can buy from Wine Access. So, so the most popular being the daily offer, it will be live on the site. You'll get the, you'll get the offer in your email and it'll be uh, available uh, up to 72 hours uh, or until it sells out. So some, sometimes it may, it may sell out within the hour and sometimes it makes it through, through the 72 hours. Uh, so that, that's, that's uh, one aspect of it. Okay. The second is, is we have an online store uh, where you can just come in similar to, similar to a catalog and, and, and mix and match and buy, you know, buy as you see fit. And then the third is, is, uh, is a quarterly wine club, uh, and that's four shipments uh, throughout the year. And, and 150 bucks a shipment. <laughs> that's the quarterly moniker. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very good. We, we found that that one works out. That that one works out pretty well. Uh, a lot of times where you get monthly shipments and you stack up bottles and you're like, oh, I really like that one, so I want to go buy more of that. We found that the, the quarterly allows people to discover wines, but without feeling like they're getting. Um, yeah, without pulling away too much choice from them. So we we try to strike the the right balance between the two. And I think we I think we we found it with the quarterly. Interesting. So how many wines um, are you offering on a, on an annual basis? Do you think? So within the daily offer, it's probably close to a thousand, and then within our store, uh, we we try to refresh it once a quarter, and we probably have about eighty SKUs in the eighty SKUs in the store. Uh, so yeah, we're probably around fifteen, fifteen to sixteen hundred. Interesting. And we'll, yeah. does your your wine uh, procurement team do they write notes, or do you look for other pundits to provide uh, you know wine spectator notes or Parker notes or seller tracker? What what's what's available for um, perhaps uh, a novice to get involved with uh, WineAccess.com? Yeah. So the so for every single offer that goes out, 
Uh, we do a tremendous amount of research. We're meeting with the winemaker. We're meeting with the people behind the wine. And we'll put out a 500-1,000 page narrative about that particular wine. We do 100% of our own notes. We will provide the critic reviews because we know that that's something that, that our consumers like to see. But we really put in, put in the time and the effort for every single offer that goes out and everything that you would see within the virtual store. So content is a big piece of what we try to do, what we try to do here and where I think that's a big differentiator for us. So uh, I understand the idea of access and, of course, money buys access. Um, does one need to be a rich person to enjoy the fruits of wine access? Or are there some some unicorns, baby unicorns out there that anyone could afford? Because I, I, I'm a concerned that, you know, sure, you've got Chateau Margaux, but it's it's 10000 a pop. I mean, you know, I guess anybody can can sell it at that if you've got a bottle. But tell me what, I, uh, other than the access, uh, are you competitive? Yeah, absolutely. So we, I would probably say the, the lowest price bottle that we'll sell on our platform is around $12 and we'll obviously go up to the to the 2500 But for the most part, we're, we average around $30 per bottle. So it's, you know, from a, from a, uh, I would say definitely from a DTC standpoint, very, very competitive, uh, always have very competitive competitive offerings one of the uh one of the things that obviously being online is it's pretty easy for anyone to price check pretty much any bottle right so we always make sure that if we're not taking care of the customer then we're going to have an issue and i don't know very many you know many uh, retailers who who have not taken care of the customer um and stayed around for a long time you know, sometimes I, I've purchased wine uh, through a variety of different sites and, of course, different retailers and through my trips around the world. Um, and what, you know, you put it in your cellar and then, you know, three, four, five years later, you open it up and it's corked. Uh, is there any way to sort of uh, recompense that sort of situation? Uh, I know that the Internet world is sort of, you know, we get it to you and then it's done. But is there some sort of, like, guarantee or is there a promise or... <laughs> Anything yeah, we can absolutely. look for? I mean, with us, there's a satisfaction guarantee. So any bottle that isn't to your liking, we credit it back, no questions asked. Oh, wow. Uh, also, too, when I think about it, we, we proactively reach out to customers as well. So if you come onto our website and you got X, Y, and Z bottle and you gave it a one out of five rating, someone from our customer service team based out of Napa is going to give you a call, find out, you know, try to learn why, did, why, didn't, this, why didn't you like this? Okay, pre- preferential style, was it corked? You, regardless of the reason, you're credited back. And, and again, I think for us, we think that's a, a big differentiator and has built up a tremendous amount of trust with our, uh, with our customers. And it's why we've had people with us for, for 10, 15 years. Very cool. I know that um, here in uh, Seattle, we've got two behemoths. One is called Costco. The other is called Amazon. And I know that Costco is huge into wine. And, of course, they've become the world's largest wine retailer. Um, you know, having them be one of that, one of the new wine access points for the, the consumer, do you see some... Uh, an ability for wine access to to grow and to become more prominent, or are you really just you like being this little niche spot where you you know you're, you're comfortable? Look, I think we we are we're always looking for for, for ways to grow, uh, and I think any 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 business who says, or definitely any retailer who says we don't have our eye on Costco and we don't have our eye on Amazon <laughs> is going to be in a lot of trouble. So we always say, how can we figure out how can we how can we Amazon Amazon proof ourselves? Uh, and, and that's where it really gets back to, you know, the, the content that we deliver, the wine curation, 
the perfect provenance where we were buying direct from the winery, delivering a really competitive price and these satisfaction guarantee are all the different sort of pieces that we believe can differentiate us and really put us top of mind with, with the consumer. And, and at every touch point, we look, how can we have a personal relationship with this consumer despite being, despite being online? And it's done through great customer service with a, with a, WSET trained customer service team. Wow. And with the, having the, yeah, the, everyone at the company, actually, regardless of whether you are on the wine team, whether your customer service uh, has to at least be through WSET level two. Does that include um, the CEO? That includes the CEO. <laughs> Very good. That's right. Yeah, Leader, so that's that, true leadership. Yeah, absolutely. So I always say that if if the person paying your bills is knows you know, is at least at, at a level two, you know that we're taking care of everything wine-related throughout the entire organization. So that was a really important thing. Plus, uh, our employees love, love to learn. So it, it, it was kind of a no-brainer uh, when it came to, you know, figuring out how to, how to roll that out. Interesting. I know that WineBit is located in Napa, and they are an internet uh, auction house, and they have a warehouse there in Napa. So do you warehouse your wines in Napa Valley now? And, and is there any concern about fires down there? Yeah, I think that's, you know, we, we have, you know, basically two two locations that we warehouse, one in Napa and um, and, and one in New York on the, on the uh, East Coast. Okay. Uh, but it's all temp controlled. You know, any anytime there's, whether if PG&E is shutting off the power or there's fires, um, you know, we'll, we'll obviously you know, make sure that the, well, first we're making sure that our employees are safe and okay. Yeah, and then good. second, we are. We're you know we're making sure that the that that the wine is safe as well, and um, throughout the years we haven't had you know, any any issues with that. Very good. Well, it's WineAccess.com, and there's a, a host of of world class wines and some mysterious wines that uh, are recommended by your expert panel. Uh, Joe Fish, CEO of WineAccess.com. Hey, what a treat! I appreciate this. Congratulations on having a a strong presence in the industry, and thanks so much for joining me on Happy Hour Radio. Yeah, thank, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it, Chris. Right on. Hey, folks, um, you know, check it out. Uh, there are gems to be found. And when you have a an outfit that has, uh, you know, the Wine Spirits Educational Trust Level 2 uh, mandated for every employee, you know that they're, they've got some integrity. And I think that's what's missing in some of these uh, Internet retailers is that heart and soul, interest, and love for wine, of course, the consumer. Hey, folks, we got a lot more coming up here on Happy Hour Radio. Stick around. Be right back on 570. KVI. Tune it in and turn it up. Cruise home with Kirby, the Kirby Wilbur Show, live and local, weekdays 3 to 6 p.m. KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends, and you're listening to Happy Hour Radio. Now back to Seattle Somalier, Christopher Chan. All right, Seattle. Hey, welcome back. Time for round two. And as we just talked about uh, having uh, world-class wine available to us, uh, one of the great pairings, of course, with wine anywhere in the world is cheese. And, uh, of course, our, our friends from France are responsible for some of the best cheeses in the world. And I have a, an old friend, uh, Charles Duke, who is the um, managing director for the uh, Americas here for the uh, French Dairy Board. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit 
about um, some of uh, France's greatest cheeses, and I've got a couple samples here that are are certainly um, deliciously pungent and um, uh, making my mouth water, so let's not waste any time. Hey, Charles Duke, uh, welcome to Happy Hour. Christopher Hari, thanks for having me. Uh, wonderful. You are in uh, based in New York, and you've been working for the uh, French Dairy Board for how long? I've been with them now five and a half years. Excellent. I know we met a couple years ago. You guys are doing a, a big tour across the United States, and we had a chance to uh, to sit down and try a, a host of uh, wonderful cheeses. How many cheeses um, does France produce? Well, France has now uh, over 1,300 cheeses. 1,300. So it's quite a lot, yeah. Um, it, here in the States, we, we are very lucky to have uh, a very good selection of all different types. And when we think about the history of cheese, is there a timeline? Was this uh, started in the 6th century, or does this go back um, before BCE? This goes back to uh, BCE, we can say. That's when uh, when cheese was kind of discovered by uh, nomads that were roaming around and, and used maybe calf's stomachs to carry things. And what they did was they carried milk. And as we know, uh, it coagulated, and that's how they started uh, realizing that uh, they couldn't preserve the milk for a longer time. Right. And was was there a um, an, a period where salt became significant to uh, creating cheese? I know isn't that a, a major um, ingredient for cheese outside of uh, milk? Um, not necessarily. I think, uh, you know, rennet is obviously important to coagulate the milk. And then uh, it depends on what type of cheese you're creating. And salt is added or can be rubbed on the exterior. So it depends on the type of cheese. I see. And so it is important to, to keep it, but um, it adds obviously to the, to the bacteria. And depending on the cheese you're making, it could add to the rind. Etc. Sure. When we think about cheeses, of course, uh, it comes in all different styles and shapes. And what's some of the history when we look at a giant wheel of cheese? Why was that the specific size and um, method of producing such cheese? Well, you know, there's there are different shapes and sizes, different colors, textures, etc. So each region in France uh, came up with different um, different types of products depending on the climate, on the terroir on um, the seasons, and um, you're referring to some of the uh, the alpine cheeses, maybe that are very large in size, like Conte, which can weigh up to 88 pounds. And those were cheeses that were able to, to keep quite long in caves and age for, for years, practically. Interesting. And why are some cheeses hard and some cheeses soft? Is that strictly an age thing, or is there a certain um, method to creating a softer cheese or or withholding something from the the, the batch? Well, it's um, most cheeses are, like I said, different textures. Uh, the uh, the harder cheeses have been aged for a longer time because as cheese, cheeses age, they lose humidity, and so the paste becomes harder. Uh, also, depending on the size of the cheese, for example, a Camembert or Brie doesn't age for that long. It maybe ages, you know, two to three months, so it still remains soft, while a Conte can age 24, 36 months, and so it loses a lot of humidity and becomes, it becomes harder. Do we believe that cheese was actually introduced and found in France? The nomads, were the nomads in the, the, the area of France back then, or was this something that kind of happened throughout Europe at the same kind of time? I think it happened throughout Europe, and cheese as we know it today, uh, 
I believe, was more introduced um, into France by the Romans coming into the south of France. Uh, so you have a lot of uh, sheep's milk cheeses, uh, goat's milk cheeses, uh, and then cow's milk cheeses more to the north. And so it was different, uh, you know, different people that brought in these different ways of eating and preserving milk. And then what happened was that certain communities, in particular the monks, they they perfected it and created more different varieties. We're so lucky to have uh, those religious orders that uh, were able to read and write and and write recipes down, and of course they had plenty of time between their prayers to to practice their craft, whether it be uh, making beers or, of course, wine and cheeses. And and you know the abbeys were really just um, kind of like the little city, right? They had they had to, everyone had to create their own little food sources, and the abbeys were uh, uh, were great at uh, farming. When you think of cheeses, yeah. um, is there is some cheese more healthy per se? Um, is goat's cheese have a higher protein or is cow's cheese um, something more uh, digestible for people? Uh, is there a, a version that, you know, more people can, can enjoy? Well, I think, you know, cheese is a healthy, healthy product, a healthy snack, uh, uh, obviously in moderation. I think that uh, it brings <laughs> a lot of uh, uh, calcium, phosphorus, other minerals, uh, uh, to the consumer, I think that um, you know they all have different qualities. I think that as far as digestion is concerned, it might be uh, easier for some people to digest uh, uh, goat. Uh, I'm sorry, um, cheap milk cheeses, uh, but it really depends on on the person and you know their their level of allergy to lactose. But most cheeses don't have lactose. As you know, we're talking about. Milk is lactose is in milk and in very fresh dairy products. Right, but H cheese doesn't have any lactose. Interesting. So those so uh, should not be an issue. Those proteins break down, I guess, or these enzymes exactly. or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is is uh, cheese weight ounce per ounce the same as milk? I know that when I think of like um, to, to digress, Kraft singles they talk about eight ounces of milk in every slice. Um, is that a uh, when we think about milk to cheese? Is it a one to one ratio, or does milk have, really have to sort of be evaporated at some point so that it becomes just the fat? Well, yeah, there is a lot of uh, there a lot uh, many more liters and gallons of milk go into creating a cheese uh, because there is byproducts like whey, et cetera, that get uh, uh, put to the side. So uh, there is there is a ratio. I don't know what the exact ratio is. It depends on the cheese. But yes, there is uh, many more gallons of milk used to make a cheese. When it comes to you know um, being a cheesemonger and smelling cheeses, I know that you guys were very generous in sending me a host of selections here. Why are some cheeses more stinky than others? What what is that actual smell? Is that a uh, a f- bacteria or is that it's a bacteria? A, it's a bacteria. So the bacteria is just interacting with the the, the milk, the, the dairy, um, and creating these aromas and flavors. Yeah, I think some uh, some cheeses are stinkier than others. The uh, the most stinky cheese in France are usually washed rind cheeses, like a poisse. A poisse, and those yes. are cheeses that are washed uh, regularly. Uh, in the case of a poisse, they use a uh, Mar de Bourgogne, which is a oh, right. a, a type of a pomace brandy yeah. that they rub the uh, the cheese with. And so this creates what they call bee linens, which is a type of bacteria that grows around the surface of the cheese. And that's what gives off the uh, the very pungent aroma. However, those cheeses, you know, are 
strong smelling. However, they're very they're very creamy and mild in mouth. So it doesn't go. Some people are put off by the smell, but once they put it in their mouth, they realize that it's very it's very mild actually. And when I'm when I'm thinking about cheeses, um, how long do cheeses last? Because I think of some of these when I was working at the private club, we had a, a great selection of cheeses, and at some point the cheeses started to smell a little different and perhaps a little more pungent. And you know, I think the human condition. If it smells like um, like moldy bread, we're not supposed to eat it. But in some cases, cheeses could smell somewhat, frankly, horrible, and yet they were still edible. Is there a, a timeline for cheese, per se, or can can blue cheese be moldy on the outside as well as the inside? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's no, not an issue with mold. On the contrary, these are all molds that, could be, that are edible, that are, that are not going to harm you. Uh, if you see mold on any cheese, you can just scrape it off and eat, and eat the rest of it. I think that when things start to turn and you'll realize that there's a smell maybe of ammonia. Ammonia, yes. That's when it's, yeah, ammonia is when you start to, uh, you realize that it's no longer uh, good. But okay. if it smells like cheese, then <laughs> it's not a problem. So uh, so the nose is right. The nose does know. If it's if it's smelling like something you don't want to put in your mouth, perhaps uh, that should be the case. And, and what's the best way to store cheese? I know that a lot of times here in uh, the United States, America, we have all these conveniences, whether it's um, f- aluminum foil or plastic wrap, but what is the best way to store cheese in your? Um, is it outside or in, in your refrigerator? And, and what sort of uh, container or paper do you use? I mean, there's a variety of schools that, that have different ideas, but I, I think you know either saran wrap or uh, cheese paper, loosely loosely uh, folding the cheese within, and then in the in the refrigerator you can put it inside the, the little compartment for cheese or down by the uh, where the fruit the fruit container is because uh, you want to keep it away from any type of, uh, you know, from direct, from the direct cold air blowing on it, because that'll dry it up. Uh, so if, as long as it's covered up and maybe put into one of these uh, plastic uh, drawers, it should be fine. Right on. Hey, folks, speaking with Charles Duke, the Managing Director of the Americas for the uh, French Dairy Board, and we've got some great cheeses to taste. So stick around. We'll be right back on Happy Hour Radio. Guys separated by 20 years and a full head of hair. Mark Lee and Van Camp, weekdays 9 to noon, Talk Radio 570, KBI. KBI, Want to Know Weekends. Time for another round of Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. All right, happy Saturday night. Hope you got something, uh, some more hors d'oeuvres or perhaps a great pairing of cheese and wine. I have the managing director of the Americas for the French Dairy Board, Charles Duke, is on the line. We're talking about cheese. And, and Charles, there's a big campaign going on right now here. Tell us about this cheese campaign. Yeah, so I work for, uh, like you mentioned, the French Dairy Board, but uh, we also have European-funded campaigns that we, uh, that we promote all around the country. Uh, this year, we were the main sponsor over at the U.S. Open Series. So at all the different U.S. Opens um, throughout the country, we were there sponsoring and um, sampling cheese to all the big tennis fans that came by. Oh. But in addition to that, we also have uh, some social media channels like uh, uh, Facebook and Instagram. And it's all under the Cheeses of Europe uh, banner, 
which is a campaign that's funded by the EU to uh, raise awareness on cheese, and in this case, French cheeses in particular. Um, and so, you know, I welcome all your listeners to, to visit cheesesofeurope.com uh, to learn more about the cheeses we're going to talk about today and um, get some more information, find out where they're available near them. Very cool. Uh, we appreciate that because that means uh, we get to talk with you and get some samples. And, you know, when uh, I'm looking at Facebook or the Internet, there's some these radical different articles that seem to be popping up. One is that cheese is um, a, a substance that can be addictive. Is is that true? I mean, they use the term. It's it's very like a very popular form of, of hard cocaine. <laughs> but, uh, you know, cheese is, is, is as addictive as crack. Is that true or not? I would say it's true, but it's a good addiction, so go for it. <laughs> I know I have my dose every day. Okay. All right. So uh, if you see somebody cooking up some cheese, it's it's an all right thing. And when we yes. think about France being the, the leader in the world for cheese, is Italy second, or is there another country like Spain that would might uh, overtake um, the second place in the world? I think as far as variety, uh, Italy is up there uh, also with the number of, uh, of PDO cheeses, which is interested, interesting. You know, there's protected designation of origin, origin cheeses, right. which uh, signify that they, uh, they come from a specific area following a very strict uh, production method. But um, Italy, I would say then um, maybe Britain. And oh. um, yeah, maybe followed by... Spain, the Netherlands, huh? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think li- that the one the one way I kind of gauge everything is by variety, and France has the most variety. You have the soft ripened cheeses, the washed ripened cheeses, the blues, the hard, etc. And then when you go into Italy, there's a lot less variety. I mean, a lot of the cheeses are mostly hard grading cheeses, sure, like Parmigiano Reggiano, like Parmesan, etc. Um, and then in Spain, you have mostly all uh, sheep's milk cheeses like Manchego. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it, I, I kind of put that list uh, by variety, by number of varieties. Very cool. So there's uh, it, what's great is that, you know, having cheeses from each different uh, area, region, or culture is part of the uh, learning and, and sharing um, their history. And I know that France has a, large, a long history of, of making cheese. I have five cheeses here. I have a Brie. I have a Comte. I have a Mimolette, a Camembert, and then um, the, is it a Blue d'Auvergne? Blue d'Auvergne. Blue d'Auvergne. Yes. Which cheese should we try first I want to, and, and, and learn about? Well, you know, there is a way to, to eat the cheeses, and the idea is to start with the mildest and finish with the strongest. Okay. Usually the mildest cheese, you know, the one that has uh, uh, the least flavor, because if you start with the strongest cheese, you're not, your palate can not, not be able to taste that milder cheese. Right. So in this case, I would start off with the brie. Yes. Uh, the brie is the first one. The brie and the camembert are very similar. They're both uh, soft-ripened cheeses with a white, uh, fluffy rind. Uh, I, the big difference, and this is a question I get a lot, is you know what's the, diff- the difference between a brie and a camembert? So the, they, they come from different regions historically. The camembert is from Normandy, yes, while the brie is more from the Parisian region. Oh. And the other big difference is that um, camembert can only be made in eight-ounce rounds, while brie doesn't have a size constraint. So it could be eight ounces, it could be a three kilo, a one kilo, et cetera. So it doesn't have a, a size constraint. Interesting. That's the big difference. But otherwise, they're very similar. 
when I'm thinking about brie, I see double cream and triple cream. And, and when we think about double and triple, what are they actually referring to? Is that a percentage of milk fat or is that a, a density or... Yeah, it's um, it's both actually, depending on on how your what method you're using. There was an old method that had to do more with uh, the percentage of cream that was added to the milk, and now the new method is more the density of of how much fat there is in dry matter. Got but it. in in you know to make it easier, we're just going to say that they add cream to the milk, and that's what makes it more. Uh, luxurious, let's say, creamier, et cetera, it melts in your mouth. So you have most breeze or, or double cream breeze, and then when you go into triple cream, you, you've you created a new cheese, let's say. Cheeses like St. Andre or right. um, Brie Savaran, et cetera, those are triple cream cheeses that are much more creamier than a regular brie. Right. Uh, I've enjoyed uh, both of those cheeses, and Brie Savaran is one of my favorite. And when we think about serving brie, uh, is this a cheese we want to um, let temp up or room temp or, or ripen outside the refrigerator? What, what's your suggestion? Yeah, definitely all the cheeses you should, you know, before serving them, before enjoying them, taking them out of the refrigerator at least 40 minutes before serving so they, uh, they get to room temp. And then uh, that way you get to really taste all the flavors and, and the texture will be optimal. So when we, um, obviously I'm I'm well versed at describing cocktails and wine and spirits and beers, but when it comes to cheeses, are there some vernacular, some some words or different descriptors that are common in the uh, the cheesemonger world? Um, yeah, every cheese has its uh, its own vernacular in France, believe it or not, and, and one cheese in particular that has a lot of ba- different descriptors would be the Conte. And for the Conte, they came up, if I'm not mistaken, there's 100 and, 170 different types of flavors and aromas that could be described within a piece of Conte. Wow. Uh, every Conte is different, that, that said. So each of them have different qualities, and there's 175 ways of saying it. So it could be <laughs> anywhere from barnyardy to animal to hay, etc. So there's a lot of different... A lot of different words. And they created a, a, a wheel that you can find online, which has all these different uh, terms. Interesting. Um, that's pretty yeah. neat. And, of course, we can go to cheesesofeurope.com to perhaps um, gain some insight on how to describe cheeses. Yeah, everything's there. You get to uh, different types of cheeses from all over Europe. You also have a handy uh, uh, information on how to create a cheese board. Uh, pairing uh, suggestions with either wine, of course, or beer, or other types of uh, spirits. And then we also have a handy app, yeah, a handy phone app that's available (laughs) for both Android and uh, and Apple. And there you can actually hear how to pronounce the names, because that's also something that a lot of consumers have issues with. You know, they feel a little bit intimidated going, going to the cheesemonger because they don't know how to say the word so that the app helps them pronounce the cheese names. I like it. I'm certainly going to grab that app. Now, I tasted the brie. It's very creamy. It has a very faint nuttiness. It reminds me a little bit of the macadamia-style nuttiness, where it's more rich and yep. creamy. Um, and this Comte, now, this is really a diverse and um, expressive cheese. It tastes like like dessert, it's like it's been baked. It's, it's got this... Uh, um, uh, sweet sweet pie crust note to it. Uh, it has like um, roasted nuts and a t- touch of toffee or caramel. It's quite 
unique. I don't remember tasting Comte like this. And where's Comte from? Uh, Comte is from Franche-Comte, which is a region uh, near uh, the Alps. Excellent. Uh, so it's an alpine cheese, right? A little harder. Yes. Um, and this is really very interesting. I, I, I can believe there's 175 different descriptors to uh, help describe Comte. Uh, next cheese. And you you came up with a lot of them. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I'll, I'll get your, your, all your descriptions were in the in the roasted category. Yes. Yeah. That's just is true. Um, oh, so next yeah. up, should I try the uh, uh, camembert or the mimolette? Try. You would. I would go with the camembert next. Okay. Now this is a so little. Again, here we have another. Uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, this is a little more creamy. This is a little more. Um, it's got a sheen to it. it. It's it shines. It's so creamy. It's so creamy, it shines, and this is, you know, another soft-ripened uh, blue Rhine cheese like the Brie. It's from Normandy. This one's going to be a little stronger. I think you'll get more uh, of a mushroomy yes. uh, and uh, earthy earthy tones in this one. Um, absolutely. And there, there is a faint note of salt both in the Comte and in the Camembert, but the Brie was, was more, we'll call the sweet cream um, profile in, in cheese. I've got right. two more cheeses here, and we're going to take a quick break. Um, but again, the, the website is cheeses, cheese of Europe or cheeses of Europe? Plural, cheeses of Europe. Cheesesofeurope.com. I'm speaking with Charles Duke, who is the uh, managing director of the Americas for all of the great European cheeses. Hey, stick around, folks. we got some more cheese to taste right here on Happy Hour Radio. Start your day the right way. The Commute with Carlson, live and local, weekdays 6 to 9 a.m., Talk Radio 570 KVI. You're in the know with KVI Want to Know Weekends. Here's more Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. All right, Seattle. Hey, welcome to our fourth and final segment. And uh, the last few bits of world-famous cheese, I've got Charles Duke. Who uh, can I just call you the Duke of Cheese? <laughs> sounds, <laughs> sure. sounds very European. <laughs> Representing cheesesofeurope.com. Uh, of course, I've tried the Brie, the Comte, which is absolutely fabulous. And you guys sent me a huge. It looks like a a, a wedge you'd put on to keep a door open. It's so big. Um, next <laughs> cheese is the Camembert, which is uh, again a very creamy cheese, a little more nuttiness, a little more mushroom and earth tones, um, which is interesting because I think. In this fall time of season, we'll have to go out and pick up some of those leaves and smell them and, and uh, just sort of get used to this idea of, of the fall ground and, and harvest soils and things like that. But uh, next up is uh, Mimolette. Mimolette is a very orange cheese, and I remember something about Mimolette. Aren't there some bugs on it or something? <laughs> so Mimolette is a, uh, is a round-shaped uh, cheese. It looks kind of like a cannonball, and the outside is uh, looks like the moon. Let's say before you cut into it, it could be brownish gray. Yeah. And when you cut into the cheese, it is a very bright orange color, and that color comes from annatto, which is a seed, and it's a, a natural coloring that's being used. Uh, legend has it that Louis the Fourteenth was a fan of Edom. But he oh, went yeah. into war with uh, the the Dutch, <laughs> and so he commissioned his own sort of Edom, and he colored it orange and called it Mimolette. 
So this is a, a cheese that's made in northern France. And yes, there are um, mites, cheese mites, that grow naturally around the rind uh, during its aging in natural caves. And these mites kind of, uh, uh, they, they, they carve their way into the rind and, and create uh, uh, air passages, let's say, that allow the insight ah. to age in a very uh, unique way, allowing and giving it its flavors and its textures. Interesting. And, and don't worry, these mites, cheese mites don't, uh, are not with the cheese when you buy them at the store. <laughs> <laughs> they, they stay in France. I see. Okay, and, and perhaps some of them uh, pass away in the process. Now, when it comes to Mimolette, was that something Louis the Fourteenth? Did he have a, a mistress named Mimolette that perhaps uh, stayed in the sun a little long or something? No, that's a good question. I don't know that one, but maybe we can. <laughs> you know, we got to create some rumors that started. Yes, some romantic background stories for these. Um, and yeah. Mimolette is. Uh, are there certain age cheeses? Do you get a six? month mimolette is there a 12 month or is there really yeah, kind of a... um, anything from three to 24 months actually all right and, and that's how long it ranges as it, as it ages it loses again humidity so it becomes more brittle as it ages it also develops these uh, nice um uh, flavor profiles like um butterscotch actually and that's uh that's a nice flavor for this cheese. Yeah, I'm, I'm really enjoying it, uh, and it's great to have all these cheeses in front of me. Of course, the studio is, <laughs> this is uh, definitely a very fragrant studio today. Um, <laughs> all right, so let's move to our final cheese, which is one of the most deliciously um, stinky cheeses I can think of. Uh, tell me about this blue, uh, creamy blue cheese. So the Bleu d'Auvergne is a uh, cheese from the Auvergne region, which is in central in central France used to be a very volcanic region at one point, and, um, which you know has this great pasture land for the cows and it imparts all these great qualities to the cheese. So this is a cheese that's um, made with cow's milk, as opposed to the more famous cousin uh, and the most famous blue cheese in France, which is Roquefort. Right. Roquefort is made with uh, sheep's milk. So this will be a good uh, blue cheese for beginners, people who may not be fans of blue cheese. The fact that it's made with cow's milk gives it a creamier, milder taste, and, you know, it, it, it really, uh, if you add a, a touch of honey, let's say, or a drop of honey, it will change the entire mouthfeel. So people who are who shun blue cheese should try this one to, uh, you know, become fans. This is quite uh, the gateway for blue cheese. I, I'm surprised how there's a, such a sweet texture, a sweet note to this cheese, and, and, of course, the blue gives you that little bit of, um, you know, we'll call it esoteric. Spiciness, yeah, yeah, uh, or even a greenish, it's, I guess it tastes blue. It's hard It's hard to describe the, the flavor of blue cheese, isn't it? I mean, it's what's, what terms do yeah, we use? Yeah, um, spicy usually comes up, salty. Salty, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and also very savory and long, long-lasting. long uh, These are really fun. I know that um, cheeses can seem to be expensive, but but they must. There's a lot of artisanal process that goes in here, and of course, it's a long way to get from Normandy or from the Paris region all the way to Seattle. So it's well worth it because these cheeses are are, are strong and delicious as well. Um, Charles Duke uh, with CheesesOfEurope.com. This has been a real pleasure. Thanks so much for joining me on Happy Hour Radio. Thank you very much.
Hey, folks, go out and cheers. get the, yes, cheers. Get that app. It's on cheesesofeurope.com. You can be the smartest cheesehead in the group, uh, and of course, you'll you can pick winter cheeses uh, that'll pair well with wines and foods and and people. So, I hope you enjoyed the show. When you're out and about, remember life is always better with a designated driver. Cheers.